Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, Gustav Vasa was faced with the most serious threat to his reign, the rebellion led by Nils Dacke. The peasantry in Småland in southeastern Sweden rose up against the king in protest against his religious reforms and his attempts to centralize the administration of the kingdom and to concentrate more power and money into his own hands. It took almost two years, but in the end Gustav Vasa was victorious. Nils Dacke was killed and thousands of other rebellious peasants were deported to Finland, where they were forced to serve in the military, defending the eastern border of the kingdom. With the quashing of the Dacke War, Gustav Vasa was finally safe on the throne. He could now turn to other matters, such as his attempts to establish a new line of rulers and turning the noble house of Vasa into a respected royal dynasty. Today, we'll see how he went about it and what challenges he faced, both from the outside and from within his own family. Episode 77, New Kids on the Block. All the confiscation of church property that we've covered at length in the last few episodes had really made people angry. But on the bright side, it had also made Gustav Vasa fabulously wealthy. It had also given the crown financial resources that it had never had before. After the Dake War, the crown controlled approximately three quarters of all the land in the kingdom directly. This was a momentous shift in ownership in only a few years. It put resources in the hands of the king on a scale that would have been unimaginable in previous generations. Gustav Vasa had also enriched himself personally. He had confiscated some 3,000 farms for his personal possession that he claimed his family had donated to the church. Family, in this case, was rather creatively and generously defined. But who was going to argue with the king, right? You could say a lot about Gustav Vasa and the way he'd acquired all these unprecedented resources, but at least he put the money to good use. He built all those castles we talked about last time to protect the country against foreign invaders and domestic rebels. He modernized and centralized the bureaucracy, strengthening the state. And he poured lots and lots of money into luxury and a lavish lifestyle. That may sound frivolous and wasteful to modern ears, but it was actually a smart political move, even necessary to ensure his wobbly grip over Sweden. As I mentioned last time, Gustav Vasa wasn't regarded particularly highly by other monarchs. And I'm not even talking about the whole Lutheran Reformation thing, which made him anathema to all the Catholic crowned heads of Europe. No, I'm referring to the embarrassing fact that he wasn't of royal lineage. There were no kings or princes among his ancestors. His father had only been a nobleman, an influential nobleman, sure, a member of the Council of the Realm, and important enough to have him executed at the Stockholm bloodbath, but there was still an unbridgeable chasm between nobility and royalty, at least in the eyes of the people belonging to the latter category. So in order to be accepted as a real king and not to be treated like some pathetic upstart, or worse, an illegitimate usurper, Gustav Vasa spent enormous effort and a considerable amount of money to project the image of a proper king. The castles where he spent most of his time, Stockholm and Gripsholm, about 50 kilometers west of Stockholm on the southern shores of Lake Mälaren, were refurbished and done up to look like homes fit for royalty. 
They were stuffed with costly tapestries, fancy furniture and other expensive items that Gustav Vasa hoped would impress both domestic and foreign guests. The king had a wardrobe filled with exclusive clothes made from elegant materials and decorated with gold thread, bells and other things that were all the rage in the mid-16th century fashion. He hired foreign experts who were brought to Stockholm to teach him and his courtiers what a real royal court should look like, how to conduct all the required ceremonies and how to behave in general. Members of the court were given lessons in etiquette, dancing, riding and music. Younger noblemen were taught fencing. Sometimes the king, hands-on as ever, gave the etiquette lessons personally. It was that important to him. As we saw last time, the king brought foreign tutors to teach his sons to become proper princes, and when his daughters were to be married off, Gustav Vasa sent his eldest son Eric to the continent to check how real royal weddings should look like in order to not embarrass the Swedish royal family in front of the foreign dignitaries who had been invited. But before he could have any children to marry off or send on scouting missions, Gustav Vasa needed to get married himself. He started to look around for a wife almost as soon as he'd taken the throne. By that time, he was already in his 30s, and that was old for someone not to be married in the 16th century. True, he'd spent the last 10 years of his life held hostage by King Christian the Tyrant and then fought a war to break Sweden away from the Kalmar Union and establish himself as the King of Sweden. He'd been busy, but now it was about time to get hitched. For all the reasons I mentioned above, it was important that Gustav's bride be a real princess. He needed the prestige her pedigree would bring to the union and their future children to strengthen the legitimacy of his reign. Only a properly blue-blooded princess could give him that. In theory, there were scores of young women who qualified, but in practice, it would turn out to be a bit of a challenge for Gustav Asa to find a bride. But the problem wasn't that Gustav was too picky. On the contrary, he showed an interest in marrying princesses from Mecklenburg, Pomerania, Poland and even Denmark, but all of their fathers turned him down. As I mentioned before, the whole Lutheran Reformation business meant that none of the Catholic kings and princes were willing to give one of their daughters to the King of Sweden. That ruled out about half of Europe. He was left with England, Denmark and those principalities of the Holy Roman Empire that had turned Lutheran and most prospective fathers-in-law who didn't mind Gustav Vasa's Lutheranism still ruled him out on account of his low birth and new crown. I mean, sure, he was the king of Sweden. For now, but who knew if the Danes would re-establish the Kalmar Union again, or if one of the many peasant rebellions that seemed to erupt in Sweden under Gustav Vasa's rule would succeed and topple him in the end. In addition, he was king because he had usurped Christian II, who hadn't only been the rightfully crowned monarch, but who was also the brother-in-law to the Holy Roman Emperor himself. So most German princes considered it too risky tying their house to that of Gustav Vasa by letting him marry one of their daughters, since that was a move that might anger their own superior at home, the Emperor. To sum up, if you had any other options, the King of Sweden wasn't someone you'd want your daughter to marry. But Gustav Vasa was nothing if not tenacious, and in the end he found a potential bride in the small principality of Sex Lauenburg. The reigning duke had already married off his eldest daughter Dorothea to Prince Christian of Denmark, but he had another daughter of suitable age for marrying a middle-aged king, namely the 15-year-old Catherine, who was still available. 
Gustav and Catherine were supposed to marry in the fall of 1529, but then the Westrogothian thunder struck, and the bride's parents got cold feet. They demanded a large sum of money to be deposited with them for their daughter's use if Gustav would lose his crown. That was bad enough, but then they also offended Gustav by offering him asylum if he would be chased out of Sweden. The king was enraged, Vasa-style, by the suggestion and broke off the negotiations. But once he'd had time to calm down and had crushed the rebellion, he mended fences with the Zex Lauenbergs and he eventually did marry Catherine in the fall of 1531. He was 35 and she had only just turned 18. The newly minted Lutheran Archbishop Laurentius Petri, brother of the influential reformer Olaus Petri, officiated. That was very important to Gustav Vasa. A part of his insistence on being a real king was to have an archbishop performing the ceremony. The party afterwards was long. It went on for a week. But the marriage, unfortunately, would turn out to be short. Catherine died already in 1535, aged only 22. But before she died, she had fulfilled her most important duty. She had given birth to a son, named Eric, after Gustav's father. The tragic and unexpected death of the young queen caused rumours. Gustav Vasa's enemies claimed he'd bashed her head in with a hammer in a fit of a well-known Vasa rage. As an aside, that wasn't true. Her grave was opened in 1940, and when her skull was examined, it turned out to be intact. But the rumor meant it would be even trickier for Gustav Vasa to find a second wife in the blue-blooded gene pool. So when he started to look for wife number two, Gustav didn't even bother to look for a princess. He wasn't going to find one, and he didn't really need one, since Catherine had already given him a son with the required prestigious pedigree. So he decided to marry the daughter of a Swedish nobleman instead. There were many pros to this choice. It would be much easier to attain her father's consent, it would be cheaper, and it was an excellent opportunity to tie the local nobility closer to his dynasty and to strengthen his popularity among the Swedish nobles. Remember that only a few years earlier, a big chunk of the Council of the Realm had sided with the rebels during the Westrogothian thunder, and aristocratic support was far from a foregone conclusion as far as Gustav Vasa was concerned. In the end, he chose to marry a young woman from the Leonhuvud family. Margaret Leonhuvud was 20 years old when the widowed king, twice her age, proposed. She belonged to one of the richest noble families in the land. Their name means lion's head for those of you at home who keep track of colorful aristocratic surnames. And like her future husband, she had lost her father in the Stockholm bloodbath. Despite her tender age, she was familiar with life at court. In fact, five years before, at Gustav Vasa's first wedding, Margaret had been one of Catherine of Saxe-Lauenberg's maids. So she was certainly familiar with the royal family, even though she'd hardly been close with the king before. They married in Uppsala Cathedral on October 1st, 1536. Just like last time, the king pulled out all the stops. His higher German experts on court ceremonies advised on all aspects in order to make the wedding look and feel like a real royal event, despite the absence of a royal bride. The wedding ceremony itself, the procession to and from the cathedral, and the festivities afterward, just like last time, everything was done in accordance with the standard of a continental court. In general, Gustav Vasa stepped up the efforts to project majesty and glamour from the 1540s onward. Perhaps this was some sort of compensation for no longer having a real princess as queen. Who knows? In any case, the court was expanded to contain several hundred people, 
many of them members of the aristocracy. When the king travelled, which he did frequently since this was still the time when there was no official fixed seat of government and the king would rotate between different castles throughout the year, at least a hundred people dressed up in colourful clothes travelled with him. That was hardly the most practical travelling gear, considering how dirty you'd get while on the road. Dusty if the weather was dry, or muddy if it was wet. But it was important to the king that his entourage should look impressive as they passed through his kingdom. The expanded court also provided Gustav Vasa with a way to tie the unreliable nobility closer to him and to his new dynasty. He gave leading noblemen positions in the various new court ceremonies and in addition, and perhaps more importantly, to the beneficiaries. They were also given lands and lucrative jobs in the administration. For example, two of the new queen's brothers were made members of the Council of the Realm, and so was her brother-in-law. This is a good illustration of how family ties were crucial in building a state in those days. It's true that we're starting to see the framework of a state bureaucracy that wasn't dependent on the person of the ruler, but it was still early days, and the framework was fragile. The institutions were st weren't strong enough yet, so personal connections were still important. Gustav Vasa ran his kingdom like a family business, but in this he wasn't unique. Most kings and princes preferred to give key positions of power to their close relatives, not only for nepotistic reasons, but also because these were the people they could trust. To us, it looks like blatant corruption, but to them, it was just prudent statecraft. Margaret, the second Vasa queen, had eight children, three sons and five daughters. The girls were all married off to German counts, marquises and dukes. The sons, John, Magnus and Karl, all remained in Sweden. Magnus hasn't left much of a mark on history except as the host for a family gathering where an unfortunate incident occurred. More about that later. But his brothers John and Karl will become an important part of Swedish history because together with their older half-brother Erik they dominated the second half of the 16th century in Sweden. As royal marriages go, Gustav's and Margaret's union seems to have been fairly successful. But it didn't last forever. While out boating on Lake Mellern in the summer of 1551, Margaret suddenly fell ill and died a few days later. The twice-widowed Gustav Vasa was now 55 years old, so way past middle age in the 16th century. But the king still felt that he had more to give and decided to marry again. Just like last time, a foreign princess was out of the question. It would be way too expensive, it would take too long to arrange, and there were still no princes willing to marry off their daughters to the aging king of Sweden. So a domestic woman from a Swedish noble family would have to do this time as well. And the following spring the king had made his choice. He'd marry a young noblewoman called Catherine. It was perfect. It would be cheap, and he already knew her parents, because they were his friends. Of course, that meant that the bride was the same age as Gustav Vasa's own children. In fact, she was only 17 years old when he proposed. Her parents didn't object, though, not only because he was the king, but also because the match would be advantageous for their family, just like the Leyenhuvids had enjoyed Margaret's elevation to queen. But there was one problem. Young Catherine was the niece of the previous queen, and that meant that in the eyes of the church, this would be a forbidden relation, based on the laws found in the book of Leviticus. The bishops all agreed, the marriage was out of the question. The same rule applied to pauper and prince, no exceptions. As you can imagine, Gustav Vasa didn't take this decision particularly well. 
and he was certainly not going to accept it. So he asked his secretary to find a counter-argument, and after a bit of thinking, he concluded that the laws in Leviticus only applied to Jews. And since the king wasn't a Jew, the ban against marrying his dead wife's niece didn't apply to him. Besides, other kings and emperors had received dispensations to marry women much more closely related to them than their wives' nieces. Just look at the Habsburgs and their virtually branchless family tree. Perhaps not too surprisingly, the Council of the Realm, in the end, chose to overrule the church and approved the marriage between Gustav and Catherine. The year after Nils Dacke's rebellion had been crushed, the king called another Riksdag. It met in Vesteros, and there were two main items on the agenda, continued religious reform and settling the succession. Both these topics were controversial. In the past, the king had promised there would be no further religious reform, and Swedish law and generations of tradition didn't allow for the king to interfere in appointing his successor. That was up to the people to decide after his death. But Gustav Vasa wanted to change all that. He wanted to do away with the elections and instead turn Sweden into a hereditary monarchy and his descendants into the only rightful claimants to the throne for the rest of time. In the summons to the Riksdag, the king stressed that it was especially important that lowly parish priests make the effort to attend. This wasn't because he wanted their input, mind you, but because they were a direct channel to the people. Everyone went to church, and this was a way for the people to be informed about what was decided at the Riksdag directly in their local parish church from the priest who'd actually attended. It was a much more convenient way to spread the king's message than to be sending out emissaries to all parts of the realm to proclaim the news. The Riksdag met in January 1544. The king kicked off the proceedings by describing how horrible life in Sweden had been before he rose to power and fixed everything. What would be more natural than to let his descendants continue his great work? He urged the Riksdag to make Sweden a hereditary kingdom and to do away with the ridiculous elections that only led to instability, uncertainty and conflict. The Riksdag voted in favour, and despite all the radical changes that Swedish society underwent during Gustav Vasa's long reign, the introduction of the hereditary monarchy was actually the only point of constitutional law that was altered when he was king. As I mentioned, there were also additional religious reforms, which at the time probably seemed more significant, but in retrospect were a sideshow at this particular meeting of the estates. Among the Catholic traditions and customs that were abolished this time were the use of holy water, incense, the adoration of saints, and requiem masses. The Riksdag also approved the abolition of even more work-free holidays. The decision at the Riksdag in Vesteros to make Sweden a hereditary monarchy made Gustav Vasa's eldest son, Erik, heir to the throne. Gustav spared no expense in making sure that Erik would be ready for the big task once it came to him, and that he'd look and play the part of a real Renaissance royal. Already when we talked about the Dacke War, I mentioned that the king had hired a German tutor for the young prince, since he didn't think there was anyone available in Sweden who could provide Erik with the princely education that he needed. The heir to the throne was taught everything a prince of the day needed to know, not only in terms of studies, but also how to speak and dress, how to dance and fence, all essential skills if you wanted to convince the world that you were the real deal. But, as I mentioned before, Gustav Vasa had more sons, Eric's half-brothers, John, Magnus and Karl. 
and Gustav Vasa worried that they'd get jealous of their brother, the heir. To avoid that, the king decided to make them all dukes and to give them duchies as well as roles in government. These dukedoms weren't courtesy titles like they are today. Instead, the princes were expected to actually govern their duchies like autonomous pseudo-kingdoms, deciding on taxes, administration and so on. That would be a lot of work, hopefully keeping them busy and far from any thought of messing with their brother, the king. But on the flip side, the dukes would be allowed to keep the incomes generated from their duchies. The only limitation on their autonomy was that they wouldn't be allowed to manage any foreign policy independent of the kings, and they would have to pay any and all future extra taxes decided by the Riksdag. But, crucially, the princes would only get full access to their duchies after Gustav Vasa died. He himself didn't want to hand over any power or incomes, he only expected his son Eric to do so. In the meantime, they were given jobs in the government to train them for their future roles as pseudo-autonomous princelings running their own ducal shows. Gustav Vasa assumed that his younger sons would cooperate with the crown and their older brother Eric in a spirit of promoting the best interests of the kingdom. It's unclear what he based that assumption on, because usually he wasn't one for wishful thinking. But I'm getting ahead of myself. John, the second son, was given Finland as his duchy, and because of the situation there, he was actually allowed to take direct control over the region already in 1556, while his father was still alive. There had been trouble along the border with Russia, which is why all those rebellious peasants who had participated in Daki's rebellion were sent there to boost the defenses. Gustav Vasa needed a trusted man in charge of Finland, and whoever ruled there needed to know what he was doing. John set up court in Turku, the de facto capital of Swedish Finland. The city, called Obu in Swedish, is situated in the southwestern corner of Finland, just across from Stockholm at the narrowest point of the Baltic Sea. There are also thousands of islands in between, making it easy to cross the sea there without ever being far from land. So it's not massively surprising that this whole corner of Finland is among the most Swedish of the whole country, even today. In fact, the archipelago between Stockholm and Turku is still now, in 2024, the place with the highest number of native Swedish speakers in the entire world. There isn't a single municipality in Sweden itself with a higher percentage of Swedish speakers. Anyway, Gustav soon had reason to regret the elevation of John, because as the Teutonic Order in the Baltics was disintegrating, John was looking across the Gulf of Finland and wanted to conquer Reval, the rich trading city today known as Tallinn, the capital of Estonia. Gustav was appalled. Not only was this a direct violation of his rule that the dukes weren't allowed to get entangled in foreign policy that wasn't directed by the crown, it was also enormously risky. A Swedish invasion of Estonia would almost inevitably lead to war with Russia and a conflict with the Hanseatic League, and Gustav Vasa had always been careful in international politics. He did not like military conflicts that he could avoid, or that he wasn't sure he'd win, because he knew all too well that wars were expensive and losing them could be disastrous. So he put his foot down and vetoed John's grandiose plan for a Swedish expansion into the Baltics. Then, the Danes swooped in and took control over Reval again, as they had done back when their flag supposedly fell down from heaven back in episode 40. Naturally, this annoyed Gustav Vasa, who didn't like to see the Danes expanding in the Baltic Sea. It also enraged John, who, perhaps rightly, thought his father's overcautious attitude had cost Sweden some easily achieved military glory and an advantageous conquest. 
he resolved never to let caution stand in the way for glory, no matter what the danger might be. An attitude that was perhaps sprung from the princely education that Gustav Vasa had insisted on giving all his sons. And yes, this is, of course, foreshadowing. The eldest son, Eric, was installed at Kalmar, where he set up his court. Even though the city was important for Sweden, it was considerably easier to govern than Finland. But Eric had another challenge to deal with. As the next in line to the throne, he needed to find a wife, and not just any wife. He needed an excellent match, a princess that could continue to boost the dynasty's still meager royal credentials. Gustav Vasa wanted Eric to marry some German princess, just like he had done. But the young heir to the throne himself had other ideas. He had set his sights on Elizabeth of England. Yes, that Elizabeth, the legendary and famously unmarried Tudor queen. Gustav Vasa was dead set against it. England was far away, not in Sweden's sphere of influence. The king of Sweden needed strong alliances with German principalities, so it would be foolish to waste a possible connection on a far-off and, from a Swedish perspective, insignificant country like England. So he forbade Eric from wasting precious time and money on courting Elizabeth. But Eric ignored his father's orders. Instead, he made a deal with his half-brother John, the Duke of Finland, behind their father's back. Eric would support John's expansionist policy in the Baltics if John would go to England and propose to Elizabeth on Eric's behalf. John happily agreed and set off to England to try and convince the Virgin Queen to marry his brother. She rebuffed him, which shouldn't have come as much of a surprise. She wasn't keen on getting married in the first place, and if she would have, there's no chance she would have picked a husband from a newly established royal house ruling an insignificant kingdom at the very northern edge of civilization. Unfortunately, Elizabeth's refusal was too polite, so Eric thought he still had a chance. Gustav Vasa, who found out, because of course he found out, explained to his son that he was deluding himself. After having seen Elizabeth's written response to the proposal, Gustav penned a letter to Eric, dripping with sarcasm, stating, I admit that I am not as learned in Latin as you may be, but thank God I still possess common sense, he wrote to his son. He went on to say that his advisers, who did speak Latin, shared the king's assessment that Elizabeth wasn't interested and that Eric was embarrassing himself and wasting too much money on this dead-end English proposal circus. And this wasn't the only time the aging and increasingly ill Gustavasa had reason to doubt the competency of his dandy son and heir. Another noteworthy incident that cast an unfavorable light on the next in line to the throne occurred in late 1559. As I mentioned before, as a part of his program to boost the prestige of the House of Vasa, the king desperately wanted to marry off his daughters to proper princes on the continent. Just as in the case of his sons, such dynastic marriages would also serve to strengthen Sweden's position abroad, forming alliances with foreign powers. So the king had the girls' portraits painted and sent abroad to get young princelings excited about the prospect of marrying one of these Nordic beauties. In the 1550s, such portraits were sent out to various German courts together with a brief description of the girls' virtues, which all, completely by coincidence of course, happened to be the same as the virtues looked for in a suitable royal wife. 
but apparently the King of Sweden didn't completely trust that the enticing portraits and favorable descriptions of his daughters would be enough to interest any prospective grooms, because Gustav Vasa also sent along a promise of a fat dowry of no less than 100,000 thaler silver. And in case you're not instantly impressed by that sum, let me just point out that the King of Denmark only offered half as much to any prince willing to marry one of his daughters, and German princes would usually marry off their girls for as little as 10,000 thaler. This too was an indication as good as any of the low status of the Swedish royal family. It was against the backdrop of this uphill battle to get his sisters married off to suitably royal husbands that Eric once again showed his lack of judgment. One of his sisters, Catherine, had married a German duke in 1559, and later that year some members of the family found themselves at Vastena Castle as guests of their brother Magnus, who resided there as the local duke. Magnus arranged party after party for his newlywed sister and her husband, and a great time was had by all. Some were even having a little too great of a time, because in mid-December a guard informed Eric that the groom's brother had been seen sneaking in through the window to the private room of Eric's half-sister Cecilia, one of the Vasa daughters who were still unmarried. These nightly visits had apparently been going on for some time. On brand for a member of the Vasa family, Eric was infuriated by the news, and decided to punish this outrageous violation of his sister's honor. So he took a group of soldiers and burst into Cecilia's room, where they caught her and her sister's new brother-in-law in the act. In his fury, Eric ignored the elevated status of the offending guest, and instead he had the man arrested, interrogated, and sent to Stockholm for the king to deal with. The king was just as furious, but not only because this cheeky German nobleman had seduced his daughter, but also because Eric had been stupid enough to turn the whole sordid affair into a public scandal by acting the way he did. He should have handled it more discreetly. The good name and honor of their family had now been dragged through the mud, and all the king's efforts to brand his daughters as virtuous wife material on the royal marriage market had been undermined. But the king was just as angry at his daughter. According to what Cecilia told her brother Eric afterward, their father both slapped her and pulled her hair, as well as confiscated all her jewelry as a punishment for her dalliance. It was only after the young queen Catherine, only five years older than her husband's daughter Cecilia, interceded with the king on his daughter's behalf, that he was convinced to forgive her. The noble German seducer was eventually released and allowed to leave Sweden after some intense pressure from his German relatives. But before he was let go, he had to swear an oath that he hadn't done anything untoward with Princess Cecilia. By this time, Gustav Vasa was clearly on his last leg. He was in constant pain and suffered from severe toothache, making him even more irritable than usual. In April 1560, he wrote a letter to his successfully married daughter Catherine, where he complained that his fatherly instructions to his wayward sons hadn't had the effect he had intended and thought he had the right to expect. Less than half a year later, he was dead. Gustav Vasa had enjoyed quite an impressive career, going from a nobleman in the Kalmar Union to the king of independent Sweden. As king, he had changed Swedish society from its foundations both in terms of the Lutheran Reformation and by establishing a hereditary monarchy with his own family as the ruling dynasty. 
Nonetheless, as death approached, Gustav Vasa was full of misgivings. As the letter to his daughter shows, he was far from convinced that his sons had learned what they needed to know to run the country in his absence. Next time, we'll see that the old king had been right to be worried. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.